Well, we have started and finished our first week of our Fellowship of the Spirit Sword reading plan, where we're reading through the New Testament together this year. Some of you who, who didn't know about this, that's what we're doing. We're reading through the New Testament. We have a reading plan that we're preaching through. Some of you have already forgotten about it or, or missed some, and that's okay. That's uh, why we're preaching through it, too, to, as a weekly reminder. And you can start fresh with us again this next week. Don't feel pressure to go have to catch up. Just start reading with us again this week. Uh, but this morning, I'll be preaching from a text that we read last week, and I thought an appropriate place to start is where Jesus himself uh, began his ministry, started his ministry in Luke 4. So if you turn to Luke 4, and we'll start reading down in verse 16. So Luke 4, 16 through 30, and it says this, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard these things, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So Jesus, when he begins his public ministry, he begins by preaching at the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is his habit. He starts preaching at the synagogues on the Sabbath day, which is a weekly day of rest and worship that was instituted by God in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. And on one of those Sabbath days, he goes into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up. And in Luke's account, this is 
Jesus's first sermon. It's how he's explaining what he's all about, what his mission is, what he's doing here. It sets the tone for his ministry. And he starts his preaching ministry with bang. He reads from the prophet Isaiah and he rolls up that scroll when he's finished and he gives it back to the attendant. And when he sits down, which is what preachers did in that day, they sat down while the congregation stood actually. And I love how it says every eye in there was fixed on him. Anticipation, building. And then what does he say about this prophecy? He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's an epic moment. And in order to help you feel how epic, we need to go back and dig in a little bit to this. For those of you who have a little bit more time as you read through the New Testament this year, I encourage you to look at the cross-references and, and see the other passages that are being referenced. And Jesus read from Isaiah 61. And what is Isaiah 61 about? Well, before we can really talk about that, we need to go back even further and understand something that Isaiah is referencing earlier in the Old Testament. When Isaiah talks about the year of favor and the year of liberty and release, he's referring to the Jubilee. In chapter 61, Isaiah is prophesying about a messianic figure who will usher in the ultimate Jubilee. And so what is the Jubilee? Well, you've heard of the Sabbath, right? Uh, in, in the Old Testament, God said that his people, that one day in seven would be a Sabbath rest, holy unto God. That they would work for six days and on the seventh day, they would stop working and devote all their attention to God alone. Well, that was not the entire expression of Sabbath in the Old Testament. What's lesser known maybe to you is that one year in seven years, there's a whole Sabbath year. God didn't just institute a Sabbath day. He also instituted a Sabbath year. And on the Sabbath year, it involves some incredible things. The land was to lay fallow, meaning they couldn't work it in order to develop it and harvest crops. And this was to remember that God owns the land. And also to trust him for the provision that year. But also on the seventh year, God didn't just reaffirm his ownership of the land. He also reaffirmed his ownership over every Israelite. In that time and culture, when someone through bad luck or, or bad stewardship, whether through misfortune or mismanagement, became so indebted that they couldn't pay off their debts, they would become indentured servants to the one who they were indebted to. But on the seventh year, God reminded these masters that it wasn't they who owned these people. Is him. And in the sab sabbatical year, their debts would be forgiven and the servants would be released. And so there's a whole day of Sabbath every seven days. And there's a whole year of Sabbath every seven years. But then every seven times seven years, after the year of Sabbath on the 49th year, there would be another year right after it. They would blow a trumpet on the day of atonement and it would begin what would be like a super Sabbath where on the 50th year, there would be what is called the year of Jubilee. And it would be a radical society altering year, a year of release and liberty and forgiveness, a year of good news and joy, a year that would disrupt and reset and equalize. The Jubilee was even more extensive 
Not only were debts forgiven and slaves set free like they were every seven years, but in the Jubilee, land was restored. If you lost your land due to bad circumstances or bad judgment, or even if your parents did, it came back to you. God made sure that even when people blew it, their families aren't buried under that debt forever and they get a second chance. It was his preventative measure to this snowball effect of poverty with long multi-generational chains of not being able to get out from under the debt while just a few others bought up and owned the whole promised land. With a society of that size, if this didn't happen every 50 years, it would not have been that hard to get, for the rich to get richer until they simply bought up and owned the whole promised land. It was owned by a few oligarchs. But that was not God's vision for the promised land. He wanted to preserve the distribution of land among the clans that he gave. And the year of Jubilee was also seen then as a year of homecoming, reunion, as well as a fresh start, and also reprioritization on God's plans for the nation rather than any individual's plans. It was the ultimate year of joy and rest and freedom and renewed hope and costly communal devotion to God through relational and economic forgiveness. For most people, there would only be one jubilee in their lifetime, right? Every 50 years. So an impoverished Israelite could spend much of his life anticipating this amazing event of restoration. I mean, I guess it's possible that some who were kids when a jubilee happened might see another one when they were old. But of course, this is easier to see as good news for some than it is for others, isn't it? I mean, this would require everyone being on board with God's vision for his people. It would especially require the rich and the powerful being on board because they didn't necessarily benefit economically as much from this, if at all. For, for many of us, we may not see how it's good news to those people, but it could be. How could it be good news for those who owned land the last 40 years and now it would be returned to people who may have never even lived there? This will sound like a leap, what I'm about to say, to someone who hasn't been trained very deeply by Christ yet. But this is the only way it could be good news. If you valued the health and joy of your community over your own economic benefit. If you valued God's purposes more than your own, then even though it cost you, it would still be an incredible blessing to you because you got to be one of the people who made it happen, right? By surrendering what you had for the glorious revolutionary plan of God and actively remembering what you should have known all along, that all that you have is not your own, Amen. but is God's. But of course, this is God's way, right? As Jesus' mother Mary sang in her song, you remember it? He brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. And there are many people for whom the Jubilee, though, is obviously good news, right? As Isaiah says it, the poor have good news preached to them. Those who have been oppressed and estranged, this is a year of release, a year of forgiveness, 
Not only economically, but relationally. It's a fresh start, which is why it happens on the heels of the Day of Atonement. Which if you remember in the Old Testament, this is when the sins of the nation are corporately and publicly paid for and removed from them. The Jubilee is one of the most incredible, hopeful, astounding ideas in Scripture. It was ingrained in the Israelite imagination as the year embodying their hope and the ideal of God for them. And as Israel began to get off track in their sin and their selfishness, they forgot about God's ways and they forgot about the Jubilee and they forgot about the seven-year sabbaticals. They even forgot about Sabbath and they, they just forgot about God's plan for them and they then became so off track that they were exiled for seven decades from the promised land in Babylonian captivity. And the prophets and others who continued to, to meditate on God's scriptures and God's plan for them, they began to see the Jubilee as a metaphor for a grand hope. When God would restore the blessings of his people and set everything perfect the way it ought to be, and this is what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus reads from. In his first sermon in Nazareth, he takes this idea, Isaiah is taking this idea of Jubilee to an even grander cosmic level. And he speaks of a Messiah, a deliverer who will come and release his people, forgive them their debts as in the year of Jubilee, and restore to them what they have lost. The Messiah will come in ushering the ultimate jubilee, offering Sabbath rest and forgiveness and freedom and joy in abundance. And Jesus shows up in Nazareth and he reads this prophecy and he says, I'm him. I'm the one bringing the jubilee and it's already begun in me. Jesus is declaring what he's all about and he says his ministry is a jubilee movement. He lives every day like it's the Jubilee. He invites his followers to live their lives by Jubilee principles. We often separate the idea of forgiveness in financial terms and forgiveness in moral and relational situations, but Jesus saw these ideas as united. Like when he taught us to pray, he said, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This is clearly in line with his Jubilee mission. And when we get to the book of Acts, after we read through Luke, we'll get to the book of Acts and we'll see Jesus' disciples living like it's the Jubilee, sharing with one another generously and joyfully. So when we read his sermon on the Sabbath day in the synagogue in Nazareth, we read it with all of this weight behind it. And we should hear him say, I'm the Messiah who is bringing the year of the Lord's favor, the year of release the ultimate consummate jubilee. And so Jesus reads this prophecy that he's the fulfillment of. And so let's look a bit closer at it. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, like I said, this text is primarily from Isaiah 61, but Jesus adds other elements from other places in Isaiah into this as well to make clear that he is the fulfillment, not just of one part, but of the whole scope and hope of Isaiah's messianic prophecies. 
That, and, and he adds that line about recovering of sight to the blind, which is a concept founded in a couple other points in Isaiah. And he adds that second line about release or liberty or forgiveness to the oppressed, to double down on that idea. He's uniting these ideas under his messianic mission. And there's something super important here that we miss in translation a bit. That word liberty that is mentioned twice in the passage as Jesus read it. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. That, that is one of two words that's usually translated forgiveness. The word aphesis. It's the word Jesus uses in Matthew 26 when he institutes the Lord's Supper. And he says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness, aphesis of sins. So to think biblically, and like Jesus, we must connect these ideas of liberty and forgiveness. The word could also be translated release. You are released from debt, released from wrongdoing, released from slavery, released to freedom, released from sin and its consequences. But remember what we talked about in the year of Jubilee. The land was a finite resource. So in order for someone to gain Someone else had to give. The forgiveness, the release, always comes at a cost. Who will pay the cost for the release Jesus is instituting? And this is where we need to notice not only what Jesus added, but where he stops reading in Isaiah 61. He stops mid-sentence in a very familiar text. And you'd only do that if you were making a point. He closes his reading with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But if he had just read a few words further, he would have said, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he stops right before reading that. Because he's not come to deal out God's vengeance, but to take God's vengeance. As Jesus would later tell a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is adding clarity to Isaiah's prophecy, separating the, the year of favor and the day of vengeance. His first coming is not with a sword in his hand, but with nails through his hands. He's come to offer release from debts, forgiveness, from sins. And that always costs. And he is going to pay the cost. And the author of Hebrews shows us that even the greatest cost for the ultimate Jubilee release was driven by joy. What does Hebrews 12 say? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Sacrifices come to be synonymous in our, in our language as we just use it. Uh, it it, it come, has come to mean loss, essentially. You have to make sacrifices means you have to lose things. You have to give them up in, the, in our common language. We primarily think of it in negative terms, but that is not how Jesus thought of it. His sacrifice was about gaining. It involved giving things up, sure, but that wasn't the focus. The focus was about joy. For the joy set before me endured the cross. It was about what it accomplished. It was about who it was for. And it was primarily positive. And the same thing has happened with the idea of martyr. Like we have this idea of a martyr complex. It's a cynical reference to people who are indulging in self-pity. And we often talk about people acting as martyrs. And we mean that they're trying to make others feel guilty for how much they've given up. 
But if it weren't nearly impossible to change back the use of language, I would love to reclaim that word and concept and think of a merry martyrdom where we give up our lives with joy, with like the genuine Christian martyrs of the past did. They didn't pout to garner pity. They thought purely of what they were giving up their lives for. And with the Apostle Paul, they said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. That's what sacrifice means. Gain. But in our sin, our eyes are blind to this perspective. And blind to much else of the ways of Jesus. Which is why he said he has come to do what to the blind? Give sight to the blind. Of course, he literally gave sight to multiple blind people. But like all of Jesus' miracles, it was a sign pointing to something more, not less than the actual literal miracle, but more. It means a greater sight as well. I have known several people who can't see with their physical eyes and can see better than many of us spiritual truths. He's come to help us behold the wondrous mystery. The Greek word edu is to behold is used 211 times in the New Testament. To give you perspective, the Greek word agapao, to love, is only 145 times. Lo, or behold, is obviously a literary device to draw attention to something, but I think too highly of the biblical authors and the Holy Spirit who inspired them to not think something else is going on here. The King James often translated edu as lo, which I like, like when Jesus gave the great commission and lo, I am with you always. It means literally to look, see. It's like saying, open your eyes, pay attention to this. It's translated as lo or behold though, in order to capture the idea of wonder. Because to see is simply to receive information, but to behold is to engage with that information as it ushers you into the profound and the wondrous, into a greater vision, into an experience that is beyond superficial and more alive than analysis. Look and listen. Pause and pay attention. Lo and behold. The Bible constantly beckons us to behold. Like when God completes his creation, he saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. When Moses encountered the angel of the Lord, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet was not consumed. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, the Messiah, about to begin his ministry, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after Pilate has Jesus beaten before sending him off to be crucified. He brings him before the Jews and says better than he knows, behold your king. When Jesus comes at the end, he will say what? Behold, I am making all things new. And beholding is precisely the means by which God transforms us. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The wondrous nature of the Christian life is that as we behold the beauty of God, it makes us beautiful. As we look with wide-eyed wonder at the glory of our King, it has a transforming effect on our souls. The Bible speaks, when the Bible speaks of transformation, we should let that grab our attention because transformation is enchanted language to be used of, of frogs turned into princes. 
And when we use the term in our everyday lives, it's usually only as a, 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 a exaggerated metaphor for ordinary changes, like the rearranging of a room on HGTV, right? They really transform that room. But that's not what it's talking about. When we come across a true transformation, like that of the caterpillar into a butterfly, we get uncomfortable with the mystery and we call it a metamorphosis. But transformation, is the, as the Bible is talking about it, is not a metaphor. It's reality. It's profound and amazing. It's God magic. It's why John Newton called God's grace amazing grace. Because though we were once blind, now we see. Jesus came to make people see. And to see reality as it really is. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus quotes Isaiah again to tell us why we're blind. And I love this because it's a more simple reason than you might think. Why are we blind? Well, Jesus says, their eyes they have shut. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Our blindness is the shutting of our eyes. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans says. We love the dark, but Jesus has come to open our eyes. Again and again, he's called the light, right? And I think of when I get my kids up in the mornings and I, I turn on the light in their room and they squint and they, they squirm and they close their eyes and they try to get away from it. The world is like that. Without Christ's work in our hearts, we hate the light. But the light is better. We're meant to live in the light. It may take our pupils some time to dilate and get used to the light. Our indwelling sin makes us squint and squirm and close our eyes at times. But Jesus gives us sight to see the truth and to love the truth and to live by the truth. He is the truth and the way and the life. As we walk in his light, we will see things differently. We will see the joy of generosity. We will see the freedom of forgiveness. We will see the rest that comes with trust. We will see the seeds of jubilee sprouting in our own hearts as they unfold like flowers before him, his warmth and his light. And Jesus says all of this, and he says he's proclaiming release to the captive. Release to the oppressed. He's giving sight to the blind. He's telling good news to the poor. And how does the congregation respond? If you're like me, your memory of this story would steer you wrong a little bit because I remember this story as, as responding angrily and rejecting Jesus, which does happen, just not yet. How do they initially respond to his sermon? Where he says he's fulfilling the prophetic year of release. They love it. They love it. When, he, when he's finished, they say, it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words he spoke. He was a hometown hit for a few minutes. So how does that initial wonder and warm reception morph into murderous rage? Because Jesus wasn't content to be only half understood. Jesus was no ear tickler or man pleaser. The reason they loved his sermon was because it appeased their entitlement. They were essentially like the brat who when given dinner says it finally instead of thank you. 
And so he explains his sermon meant something a bit different than what they thought. It would be like hearing a sermon on one of your favorite passages and the preacher says that this verse is, that you love so much is not so much about you as it is about that person that you most complain about. And Jesus is clarifying for them the kind of good news and the kind of people this is good news for. And he recalls to their memory two stories from the scriptures in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha the prophets. He recalls a time of great famine in which the prophet Elijah was sent to a pagan widow rather than any of the widowed women in Israel. And he also recalls Elisha. He healed a Syrian general named Naaman rather than healing any of the lepers in Israel. And now here's where we need to remember the Jubilee. I think this will help us understand their their difficulty. Remember how there's two kinds of people for whom the Jubilee was good news, but in different, very different ways. There were those who graciously received in the year of Jubilee, and there were those who had already graciously received and now got to share. It was meant as good news for everyone, but I bet it won't be too hard for you to imagine that if you were in the position of giving over land that you had ownership of, you might, just might, have had a little harder time seeing that as good news, right? Might have been tempted to hold on tight. But then you would have been forfeiting your joy as well as opposing God. God always gives us blessings. Don't misunderstand me. God always gives us blessings, material and spiritual, for us to enjoy them. It's just that he believes the greatest way to really enjoy something is to share it. Jesus is trying to say that the Jews thought they were in one of those categories. They thought they were in the category of receiving back blessings in the Messiah's Jubilee. But what Jesus is trying to help them see is that they are actually in the category of those who share their blessings. And unfortunately for them, Entitlement is nearly impossible to turn into joyful generosity. But the stories Jesus chose are very important. They show how to be the kind of people who receive the good news of the kingdom. It's not the kind of news Nazareth wanted to hear, but I'm praying by God's grace we may hear it well. So who are these two people who were blessed by Elijah and Elisha? A poor widow about to starve to death and a rich, powerful general with a disfiguring disease. At first glance, they don't seem to have much in common other than what the people in Nazareth immediately saw, which is that they're pagans, that they weren't Israelites. Their non-Jewishness is what they have in common at first. But the inclusion of Naaman here is really already very telling because he was not materially poor, but actually pretty rich. He wasn't oppressed, but it was actually a general in the oppressing army which shows that Jesus means more than what meets the eye in this prophecy. Poor and oppressed must also mean something that can apply to Naaman. Naaman, we are told, was a mighty man of valor, but we're also told he was a leper. He, and Naaman had an Israelite slave girl, uh, which he had captured on one of his raids of Israel. And the slave girl seemed to learn the loving kindness of her God well. And she loved her master. And she knew her God's power expressed through Elisha the prophet. And she told her master Naaman about him, certain that he could heal him. And Naaman, on her suggestion, went to Israel. But where did he go when he went to Israel? 
not to Elisha. He went to the king. He brought a letter from the king of Syria and he brought a bunch of money too. But of course, that's not where the slave girl told him to go. That's just where he thought he should go because that's where important people like him go. Well, the king of Israel was terrified when this happened because he couldn't heal Naaman and he thought he was in a trap. But when Elisha heard of what happened, he sent to the king and had him send Naaman to him. And so Naaman went to Elisha. But when Naaman came, Elisha didn't even go out to meet him, but just sent word for him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times with the promise that he would be cured. And how did this make Naaman feel? Was he happy or angry? (laughs) He was angry. Why? Because it seemed too demeaning to him. He was a proud man and he wanted to come. He wanted Elisha, if he had to go to Elisha, not the king, he wanted him to at least come out and meet him in person and wave his hand with a mighty miracle and call down the power of God to heal him. And if he was going to just have to bathe in a river, he could do better than the Jordan River. He says the rivers where he come from are twice as good as that river. But, and so he was going to leave in his pride, in his arrogance. But his, his servants pleaded with him to humble himself and obey the prophet. And so Naaman did. And when he humbled himself and obeyed, he was cleansed. And he wanted to pay Elisha with a great gift. He wanted to give as much as he could to repay how much he'd been given. But Elisha refused. It was pure grace. And he wanted to teach him about the grace of his God. See, Naaman was in a desperate situation. So desperate that his desperation was, willing, was able to overcome his entitlement and his arrogance. He was a man of great position and great wealth and pride who had to humble himself before the servant of the one true God. And what about the widow Jesus spoke of? The prophet before Elisha was Elijah, and during a drought, God sent Elijah to Zarephath, where he encountered a widowed woman, and he asked her for some water and a piece of bread. But she tells him that she only had enough bread for one last meal for her and her son, and then after that, her only plan was to eat that and then starve to death. That's how poor she was. But he tells her not to be afraid, but to make bread for him first, and then God will provide bread for her and her son. And she obeys. But here again, she was also in a desperate position. Her plan was to eat and die. Her desperation led her to trust and obey. If she had had plenty of flour, would she have been in a position to trust the prophet? Or would she have said, I got it covered? This is the thing. This desperation, this desperate need for the gospel that leads to a humbling of oneself out of pride and out of fear. And notice both people had other plans, but they had to, hum- Naaman had to humble himself out of his pride. She had to humble herself out of her fear and in order to trust and obey the word of God. Jesus is saying, this is who I'm going to. The desperate, the needy, and only people who see themselves as such. When I was in Nashville, I got to meet quite a few missionaries who served both in an American context and in other contexts. And as I've heard their stories and talked with them, I picked up something as a part of almost all their stories that in many other places in the world, you see their eyes twinkle 
when they talk about how many other places in the world there are people who are desperate for the gospel. They need it. And they know they need it. And it makes them humble. And it makes them do two things that Americans usually don't. They submit and they commit. And they don't have to chase after them and twist their arm to do things like read their Bibles together and pray and attend church regularly. But the people in America don't seem to feel like they need anything. They don't even need the church. And even though these missionaries all acknowledge the various difficulties of their calling, there's also a great joy that you see when they talk about serving, serving people who pant after God and hunger and thirst for righteousness, where they are desperate for the gospel and they don't take the church and the things of God for granted. And it makes me wonder if we, maybe we are Nazareth. Are we shutting our eyes because the light is too bright? If we open them a little wider, would we see our great need? And would we sense our desperation? Would we, would we open our hands a bit more? Remember, they liked Jesus when they thought he was saying what they wanted to hear. But when he clarified, they wanted him gone. And are we just like the good folks of Nazareth before the clarification? Liking Jesus because we only let ourselves understand him to mean a gospel that costs us nothing and makes us feel good about ourselves? Is our indifference to his ways just our modern American passive-aggressive way of throwing him off a cliff? We don't need to kill him. We can just ignore him. The gospel is for the desperate and the needy. It's for the humble in heart who are willing to give themselves over completely. And it can't be good news for you until you see yourself buried in debt with no way out. Amen. But then it's the greatest news in all the world. Yes, and you know you've really been shaped by this good news when you live like it's the jubilee when you see how much you've been forgiven and so you forgive others who trespass against you. You see how much you've been given by the grace of God and so you joyfully share it with him and with others. You see how much you've been welcomed and so you practice hospitality. You see how bankrupt your own soul has been so you don't judge others and look down on them. You see how, you've, how, you, how loved you've been by God. And so you genuinely love and care for those around you. You see how good God is. And so you trust him with your life rather than anxiously fretting and toiling to secure your own peace and well-being. You rest in him. You come to the Lord of Sabbaths and he gives you rest. Jesus has come to proclaim the good news for all the world don't be too proud to see how good it is. Don't be too entitled to miss the joy of his jubilee. Come to him today. Receive his forgiveness and live in his love. Let's pray. Holy Father, humble us out of our pride and strengthen us through our fear and lead us to trust you and you alone. Remove our entitlement so that we may be grateful. 
open our eyes that we may become desperate for your grace. And in that desperation, thank God, we freely receive it. And lead us in the joy and rest and freedom of the jubilee of our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.